read the Des Moines Register for Tuesday, November the 7th, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Scott Splavik, and your partner at the micro- I, my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Deanna Snyder. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. The AccuWeather forecast says mild today with clouds and sun, winds east-southwest 8 to 16 miles per hour, mostly cloudy tonight, winds east 6 to 12 miles per hour, clouds and sun tomorrow. Today's high is expected to be 64 degrees with a low of 49 degrees. Mostly cloudy with winds and sun. Uh, Winds east-southeast, 8 to 16. Mostly cloudy and mild tonight. Winds out of the east, 6 to 12. Tomorrow's high is expected to be 62 with a low at 37. Breezy in the afternoon. Thursday, high of 54. Low of 33 and partly sunny. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday all have highs in the 50s and lows in the 30s. So, looks like a nice week. Sunrise today, 6.53 a.m. Sunset, 5.03 p.m. Moonrise today, 12.57 a.m. And moonset today at 2.44 p.m. Headlines on the front page of the register. Danger near schools. Environmental group says Iowa pupils could be in path of pesticide drift. Iowa to pay $10 million to siblings of fatally starved Sabrina Ray and their law firm. And our third story on the front page this morning is entitled Reynolds's support is a major pickup for DeSantis's run. And there's a little sidebar. Of course, today is election day, and polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. today. Find your polling place and precinct on the Iowa Secretary of State's website. That's sos.iowa.gov. And be sure to visit DesMoinesRegister.com to study up on who is running for mayor, city council, and school board in your Des Moines metro community. And come back to the website tonight for live results. The Des Moines Register will track issues at polling places on Election Day, report any problems to the reader's watchdog, Lee Rood, at lrood, R-O-O-D, at dmreg.com, and she will follow up. Anyone who is concerned about political or potential election misconduct also should report it to their local law enforcement agency. Iowa Code Chapter 39A spells out what could be considered misconduct under Iowa law. If you have questions, contact your local county auditor or the Iowa Secretary of State. Now here's Deanna with our first article. Thank you, Scott. Danger near schools? Environmental group says Iowa pupils could be in the path of pesticide drift. This is from Donnell Eller of the Des Moines Register. 
Iowa has nearly 370 elementary schools within a quarter mile of farm fields, including about three dozen in the Des Moines metro, that likely are sprayed with pesticides and could expose children to harmful chemicals, says an environmental working group. Released Thursday, the report says 22 Iowa schools are among about 4,000 nationally that are even closer within 200 feet of farm fields, which could place students in the path of pesticide drift. The the group said agricultural pesticides can be blown for miles from their application site. Along with the report, the group released an online interactive map that allows users to enter an address and see schools in the vicinity that are within 200 feet or 440 yards of the crop fields. While many U.S. cities, counties, and states, including Iowa, have adopted some restrictions around spraying near schools or parks where children play, Some members of Congress are pushing federal legislation to block those protections, according to the the Washington, D.C. Environmental Advocacy Group. U.S. Senator Cory Booker, joining the study's authors in a call with reporters Thursday, said the state and local governments have taken actions such as adopting buffer zones, limiting or banning crop dusting around schools, and setting limits on when pesticides can be sprayed. Despite those efforts... Some members of Congress are now proposing to preempt all those laws, stripping states and localities from being able to do what's necessary to protect their children, said the New Jersey Democrat and former presidential hopeful. Bayer's Monsanto, the maker of Roundup, the target of thousands of lawsuits claiming it causes cancer, said recent legislation that U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson, who is a Republican from South Dakota, introduced focuses on uniformity in labeling and doesn't try to block local restrictions. And Iowa farm groups say growers follow strict rules when using pesticides on the state's 22.5 million acres of corn and soybeans to prevent it from drifting to other properties. Uh, Megan Anderson, an Iowa State University Extension agronomist, said, Farmers are extremely cautious with their pesticide applications, especially when they are near any kind of non-agricultural ground, whether it's a school, someone's home, or garden. Here's what Iowans should know about the report and the pesticide drift. First, what are the threats of pesticide drift to elementary school children? The Environmental Working Group said it didn't connect school locations near farm fields to incidents of child illness. It said about 30 states, including Georgia, Kentucky, and Texas, have adopted tough standards for how and when pesticides can be sprayed near schools, pointing to the potential human health harm that it uh, it can cause, including cancer, neurotoxicity, and developmental and reproductive impairments. Children are especially susceptible to potential health problems, the group said. The Iowa Department of Agriculture said Thursday that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency rigorously tests pesticides to ensure they are safe for people and the environment, and that the state requires training and testing for private and commercial applicators. It also investigates complaints about pesticide use with agriculture-related filings, more than tripling over the past decade to 294 in 2022. So what pesticide restrictions exist in Iowa? The Environmental Working Group pointed to a state law that requires applicators to notify the public in urban areas 
when pesticides have been applied to, to residents' lawns, golf courses, parks, and rights-of-way. And Dubuque has set aside parks where pesticide use is restricted. Reduced pesticide use is practiced in other parks. What do farmers do to prevent pesticide drift? Anderson, the ISU field agronomist, said farmers pay close attention to wind speed and direction, among other factors, before applying pesticides. And growers are likely to use a ground rig instead of airplane-mounted sprayers to more precisely apply chemicals near schools or other non-farm areas, she said. How are members of Congress trying to block state and local pesticide restrictions? Booker said some lawmakers are seeking to to add preemptions of local and state measures to the next farm bill, which is now being debated. The Environmental Working Group's Scott Faber pointed to Johnson, South Dakota's lone House member, as leading the charge. Whether you're a conservative who believes that the federal government shouldn't be dictating to to localities and believe in states' rights, or whether it's somebody who comes at it from an environmental justice perspective like I do, this should be something that should unify people, Booker said. Johnson's office said in June the legislation would prohibit states from imposing their own labeling requirements that are different from the EPA's science-based labels. Johnson, who introduced the legislation with Representative Jim Costa, Democrat from California, said political agendas in states like California are causing confusion in the ag industry. He went on, farmers in South Dakota and across the country have stressed their anxieties that labeling restrictions and scared tactics from some states, which contradict decades of scientific guidance from the EPA, would be devastating for modern U.S. agriculture, our food supply, and Americans' grocery bills and their livelihoods. So why would Congress seek to block state and local restrictions? The Environmental Working Group said the effort is supported by farm, landscaping, and pesticide groups and companies, including Bayer's Monsanto, in an effort to, quote, boost pesticide sales and limit legal judgments that resulted from pesticide use, unquote. Bayer, for example, agreed to pay up to $10.9 billion to settle thousands of claims that weed killer Roundup's activity ingredient glyphosate has caused cancers. Bayer said in a statement Friday that it supports legislation such as the Agricultural Labeling Uniformity Act alongside 360-plus agricultural and environmental organizations to ensure that consumers and farmers can rely on science-based regulation. The company, which has its U.S. headquarters in St. Louis, said that legislation does not in any way prevent or block any local use restrictions local governments may choose to impose. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Deanna. Iowa to pay $10 million to siblings of fatally starved Sabrina Ray and their law firm. This article is written by Lee Rude of the Des Moines Register. Two former siblings of Sabrina Ray, a peri-teen starved to death and severely abused by parents who adopted her out of foster care, are expected to receive almost $3 million each in a special trust under a settlement approved Monday by the State Appeal Board. Cease and Wadding, the law firm that filed suit against the state on behalf of the siblings, will receive more than $4 million, 
and the youth's medical bills also will be paid as part of the settlement, which will cost taxpayers $10 million. The siblings, younger sisters of Sabrina, who were adopted by Mark and Misty Joe Boozman Ray, were not identified by name in the statements. But attorney Scott Wadding, representing both, said one is now 18 and the other is still a minor. A conservator will be a appointed to oversee the girls' trusts, which will be overseen by a Polk County District Judge. Both girls initially sought $50 million from the state, saying they were severely abused, tortured, and neglected, and that DHS failed to consistently inform the agency's field workers of reports of abuse, including withholding food and the, in the Ray home before Sabrina died. Quote, in short, the amount of abuse committed by the Rays is indefensible, and the foster care system's failure to protect the children were significant, wrote Deputy Attorney General Stan Thompson in a letter announcing the settlement. He goes on to say the prolonged exposure to such an environment caused significant physical and emotional damage to these children, end quote. Boozman Ray is now serving a life sentence, and Ray received an 80-year prison term for the abuse perpetrated over the years. The settlement also calls for the director of Iowa's Department of Health and Human Services to convene a task force by the end of the year to review implementation of, any om of an ombudsman's report released in the aftermath of the Ray's death in 2017. Ray, age 16, was one of 23 foster children the Rays took in over a decade of time. On May 12, 2017, as the couple took their sons to Walt Disney World Resort in Florida, their oldest adoptive daughter, Sabrina, died in a dark room with her two little sisters by her side. Over the course of 13 years, the Rays had looked after 112 children, at Sunshine Daycare, their licensed child care center in Perry. Among the children the couple cared for were those of employees of Iowa's Department of Human Services and a private agency that contracts with DHS to provide child welfare services. The adoption, foster care, and child care subsidies the couple received from the state totaled more than $640,000 from the years 2006 to 2017. Yet, in all that time, and with all that interaction and oversight with DHS employees and contract workers, and all that money at stake, DHS workers never confirmed child abuse was happening, despite 11 abuse reports over the first half of the 2010s, a state ombudsman investigation released in 2020 found. The State Appeal Board is a three-member board comprised of the State Auditor, Treasurer of State, and Director of the Department of Management. The board approves or rejects and pays claims against the state or a state employee and resolves local budget protests. At least one other child, a 10-year-old, placed in the Raises Child Care also received a $500,000 settlement last November. The boy began attending Ray and Boozman Ray's daycare in the year 2013 and continued until the year 2017 when the couple were arrested in Sabrina's death and the abuse of her two younger sisters, appeal board records show. 
The abuse case involving Sabrina and her siblings came on the heels of similarly alarming abuse allegations involving West Des Moines 17-year-old Natalie Finn, who starved to death in October of the year 2016, and Malaya Knapp, who fled an abusive home in Urbandale in late 2015. Shy and small, Sabrina was separated from an older half-sister and four brothers when she was placed in foster care before the age of 10, birth relatives said. The ombudsman's lengthy report found DHS had wrongly rejected some reports of abuse against the Rays, who, witnesses said, had allies within DHS and in Perry, where daycare was scarce. The report also said caseworker records were inaccurate and not thorough enough, and that the agency failed to retain records long enough to help workers identify patterns of abuse. Those findings were similar to what the ombudsman found after looking at the death of Finn, who, like Ray, had been pulled out of school and abused by the foster parents who adopted her. Quote, in some ways, though, DHS's failings in the Ray case were even more acute than with the Finns, the report said. It goes on to say, in the Ray household, the mistreatment of children extended beyond the immediate family to the parents' in-home daycare and foster care children. Unlike the Finn case, where Natalie's mother obstructed authorities' attempts to inspect the home, DHS workers and contractors were regularly in Sabrina's house and in contact with the family over a period of years. Suspicious abuse, suspicions of abuse were certainly present among those who interacted with children at the Ray household. Unfortunately and sadly, a lack of communication among those workers weakened the oversight and could have discovered the, that abuse, end quote. Several of the allegations lodged against the Rays included that Sabrina looked extremely thin and unhealthy. Quote, there were plenty of official eyes and ears on this family, the report said. <clears throat> when it came down to it, there was not sufficient communication among DHS officials, end quote. By scrutinizing DHS files and through interviews with staff, the ombudsman found many more vigor and with greater skepticism of the Ray's explanations. Police discovered Sabrina Ray slept on a thin mattress on the floor of her bedroom and apparently had used a toilet intended for toddlers. The bedroom had locks, alarms, and coverings on the doors and windows. A DHS daycare inspector failed to check the bedroom just months before Sabrina's death because she misunderstood a policy requiring a complete examination of the house, the ombudsman said. Some DHS workers noted during their assessments that Sabrina appeared thin, but in interviews with the ombudsman after her death, they acknowledged a lack of training in recognizing malnutrition. An independent consultant hired to review DHS practices and policies after Ray and Finn's deaths found morale was poor among social workers. Staffers complained their training was insufficient, and the state has long expected them to do more with less. Deanna? Thank you, Scott. All right, Governor Reynolds, support is a major pickup for the DeSantis run. Governor is to campaign alongside him to reverse the madness that we see. 
This is from Brienne Fannin-Steele, the Des Moines Register. After weighing the field and meeting every Republican presidential candidate, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is formally putting her support behind Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ahead of the 2024 Iowa caucuses. Reynolds said, I'm a governor and a colleague, and when I look at Ron's record and what he's been able to get done, he's probably one of the best, most effective leaders that I know. And that is the kind of leader that we need to not only reverse the madness that we see in this country happening on a daily basis, but to actually move this country forward. And I believe that Ron is the person that can do that. And I'm excited to endorse him and to help be a part of his campaign. Reynolds had been quietly signaling her support for DeSantis for months, but she made it official at a Des Moines rally on Monday night. The endorsement is an enormous win for DeSantis, who hopes to harness Reynolds' star power among Iowa Republicans as he looks to jumpstart his stagnant campaign and establish himself as a clear alternative to frontrunner Donald Trump in the race's critical final months. In addition to the Monday rally, Reynolds plans to speak at an event with DeSantis in Davenport on Tuesday morning before flying to Miami to help him fundraise around Wednesday's debate. DeSantis, who also sat down with the register on Monday alongside Reynolds, said he expects the endorsement will help boost his campaign. He said of Reynolds' role on the campaign going forward, She told me she wants to be active, and so we obviously welcome that. And she's the best surrogate you could have in the state, of course. But also, you know, I told her, my wife, my wife and me, we're workhorses. So if there's something you recommend, go speak to this group. Go speak to that one. You tell us. We want to be there. I would say almost every one of those people will have a positive view of what Kim has done as governor. And that's a testament to her leadership. That's a testament to the results that she's delivered. The endorsement has angered Trump, who had previously lashed out at Reynolds over her apparent coziness with DeSantis, accusing her of being insufficiently loyal. Reynolds was a firm Trump ally while he was in the White House, but she withheld any endorsement of him early in the 2024 race. Soon after the news broke, Trump's campaign fired off a statement saying, Kim Reynolds apparently has begun her retirement tour early, as she clearly does not have any ambition for higher office. Earlier this year, she promised her constituents that she would remain neutral in the race, yet she has completely gone back on that promise. Regardless, her endorsement will not make any difference in this race. Trump weighed in shortly after to complain about Reynolds' disloyalty and then made several debatable claims taking credit for her success and keeping the Republican Iowa caucuses first in the nation. He said, I opened the position for Reynolds so she became governor of Iowa by moving then-Governor Terry Branstad to China as ambassador. I then helped her when she was substantially down and losing to the Democrat candidate and worked hard to get her elected including an endorsement and big Trump rallies, Trump said bitterly in a series of posts on his social media site, Truth Social. Very importantly, I was the sole reason that Iowa remained first in the nation. It's rare, though not unprecedented, for Iowa's top elected officials to weigh in on behalf of candidates ahead of the caucuses. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley endorsed a good friend, U.S. Senator Bob Dole, in 1988 and 1996, and Branstad encouraged Iowans to caucus for anyone but U.S. Senator Ted Cruz in 2016. But it's far more common for Iowa's high-profile political figures 
to take a hands-off approach. Grassley and others have pledged to remain neutral this cycle. Reynolds, too, had initially ruled out endorsing anyone ahead of the Iowa caucuses, saying she preferred to welcome the full slate of candidates into the state. But more recently, she opened the door to the possibility. At an October 25th news conference, Reynolds said she was still weighing an endorsement, suggesting she felt compelled by big national issues like inflation and border security. She said, it's just too important. This next election is too important. Reynolds has appeared on the campaign trail with every presidential contender, but she appeared to strike a strong early relationship with DeSantis, introducing him to Iowans during his first trip to the state in March and appearing frequently with him and his wife, Casey. Reynolds and DeSantis have charted similar political paths, growing their national profiles amid the COVID-19 pandemic when they led Republican states in pushing back against shutdowns and mask mandates while leaning into controversial culture war issues. Both governors have signed laws prohibiting school instruction in LGBTQ plus topics, offering state-funded private school scholarships to all families, and banning abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Trump called the Florida version of that bill a terrible mistake. DeSantis has even said he would consider Reynolds as a vice presidential candidate. So how much will Reynolds' endorsement help? According to an October Des Moines registered NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll of likely Republican caucus scores, DeSantis is tied for second place with former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley. They are at 16%, well behind former President Trump, who is at 43%. No other candidate cracks double digits. DeSantis' campaign and allied super PAC have poured millions of dollars into amassing the state's largest field operation, field operation ahead of the caucuses, though he has failed to gain traction in the polls. In fact, his standing has slipped in the Iowa poll and in other national polling. Reynolds, who remains deeply popular among Iowa's Republican base, could be a powerful ally in helping to consolidate support. Jeff Kaufman, who is Republican Party Iowa chair, said, I would say that with a great deal of confidence that Kim Reynolds is the only person in the state of Iowa that could be a king or queen maker. He said, there's a lot of people who like to cast themselves as kingmaker because it helps them to push their organizations, but she's the only one that could be. So in Iowa, Reynolds is more popular than Trump. According to the Iowa poll data, Reynolds is viewed more favorably among likely Republican caucus scorers than any of the presidential candidates. In August, the poll found that 81% viewed her favorably, including 50% who viewed her very favorably, and another 18% viewed her unfavorably, and 1% were not sure. In the October poll, which did not ask about Reynolds, 69% of likely GOP caucus scorers say they view DeSantis favorably, 26% view him unfavorably, and another 5% are not sure. Trump is viewed favorably by 66% and unfavorably by 32%, with just 1% not sure. But it's also not clear whether a single endorsement can substantially move the needle in DeSantis's favor. Bob Vanderplatt said the thing is that Iowans, what you, have, what you love about them is that they're very savvy, and yet they like making their own decisions. So endorsements only go so far, 
He said there's no guarantee others will follow the lead. Van der Plaats is also weighing whether to endorse in the race. He said the endorsements could be meaningful if they begin to show Republicans coalescing around a Trump alternative. He said, I think there could be a potential where, you know, you could see a domino effect of different endorsements. If they all rally around one candidate, that would be a signal to a lot of people. In a February interview, Reynolds said that she believes Iowans are looking for a winner. She said, I just think, I, I think that they think it's important that we take back the White House. So I think they're looking for somebody that can win. So they want to feel confident in the message. They want to believe that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Back. Thank you, Deanna. Now we're moving on to the Metro and Iowa page. Our top story is Fetterman rips 2024 GOP field backs Biden. Not sending their best and brightest to Iowa. This is written by Galen Bacherir of the Des Moines Register, and the dateline is Altoona, Iowa. U.S. Senator John Fetterman mocked the 2024 Republican presidential field here Saturday evening, headlining the Iowa Democratic Party's annual Liberty and Justice fundraiser as leaders rallied supporters and donors. Quote, you might agree that the GOP is not sending their best and brightest to Iowa, end quote, the Pennsylvania senator said jokingly, asking for a moment of silence for Mike Pence's recently suspended campaign. You must be getting so tired of these people. He expressed ardent support for President Joe Biden's re-election effort, remarking, quote, If you are a Democrat that wants to criticize and go after Joe Biden, our president, go ahead and write a check for Trump, end quote. Iowa reminds me of a red, con- red county in my state of Pennsylvania, Fetterman said, think thanking Iowa Democrats for doing the hard work as they aim to retake seats in the State House and on Capitol Hill after a disappointing 2022 election cycle. Party leaders told supporters that despite a wave of Republican victories last cycle, better performances were on the horizon. Chair Rita Hart said Democrats were on the road to a comeback and State Auditor Rob Sand called the party a team that is way better than our record shows. Quote, our worst days are behind us, said House Minority Leader Jennifer Conforst. I know that in my bones, end quote. Republican priorities and policies on abortion restrictions, private school scholarships, and a host of other issues were roundly criticized, with Hart declaring that Democrats would bring balance back to the state of Iowa. Democrats needed to reactivate voters that stayed home in the year 2022, they said, to unseat key targets such as state representative or state senator, excuse me, Brad Zahn, a Republican from Urbandale, and U.S. Representative Zach Nunn in the 3rd District. Quote, it will not happen overnight, said Senate Minority Leader Pam Jokum, laying out a plan for Democrats to retake the state Senate by picking up nine new seats by the year 2029 and taking control by 2030 in the time for the next decade's redistricting process. Party leaders gather with eyes on 3rd District, conflict among members on Israel. 
The annual fundraiser comes as Iowa Democratic leaders gear up for the 2024 election cycle and navigate recent divisions among factions in the party. A key seat on next year's ballot, the 3rd U.S. House District, remains without a formally announced Democratic challenger to none, though former U.S. Department of Agriculture official Landon Bacham has indicated he's considering a run. Last week, a rift erupted between IDP Chair Hart and Democratic chapters at the University of Iowa and Iowa State University after the Iowa chapter released a statement declaring that they shamelessly and fully support Palestine amid the Israeli-Hamas war. Hart called for the student leaders' resignations, which led the Iowa State chapter to declare they were disaffiliating from the state party. It also drew condemnations from the party's progressive and Arab American caucuses. Deanna? Thank you, Scott. All right. A Waterloo man is given a life term in Des Moines murder. This is from William Morris of the Des Moines Register. A Waterloo man will spend the rest of his life in prison for his role in a Des Moines murder even as his alleged conspirator, co-conspirator, goes free. The man's name is Sar, S-A-H-R, and they don't give any other first name for that. Sar was charged alongside his friend Sam Sando in the January 2022 death of 24-year-old Trisha Thompson. Investigators said they found that Sando had arranged a drug deal via Facebook with a Des Moines man named Andrew Mayer. Mayer then got a ride to the sale from Thompson, only for the car to be confronted by two gunmen, alleged by prosecutors to be Saar and Sando, trying to rob Mayer. When Thompson tried to drive away, prosecutors said the men opened fire, mortally wounding him. Saar and Sando were both charged with first-degree murder, but were tried separately. Sando, who went first, was acquitted of all charges in May but the jury that heard Saar's case sided instead with prosecutors, and in September he was convicted of first-degree murder, robbery, and assault intending to inflict serious injury. At Saar's sentencing Friday, prosecutor Joseph Crisp successfully sought a sentence of life plus 54 years, with all Saar's convictions running consecutively, saying it would deter future would-be criminals. Although Thompson's relatives chose not to speak at the hearing, Crisp said Thompson's mother told him that even when perpetrators are caught and punished, nobody wins. He said, she's forgiven you, forgiven Mr. Sando, and tried to move on. I think that says a lot about her and about the community. Saar initially declined to make a statement, but after Crisp spoke, he received permission to address the court. He complimented the prosecutors for their efforts on behalf of Thompson's family, but maintained his innocence in the charges. I think this is the reason a lot of young black men don't really believe in the system, he said. I've done things in my life. I'm no saint. But this crime I never committed. The person who really killed her son is still out there. Saar, whom prosecutors connected to the site of the shooting, through cell phone location data and text messages with Sando, among other evidence, said he never knew Thompson and had never wished ill toward him or the other two people who were in the car at the time of the shooting. 
Sar said, may his soul rest in peace and may justice be done one day. I'm going to go with my head up and a smile on my face because I know I'm not a killer and will never be a killer. Judge Lawrence McClellan sentenced Sar as requested by the prosecution and without possibility of parole as mandated in Iowa law. Also, as required by state law, he must pay $150,000 in restitution to Thompson's estate. Defense attorney Nate Monday declined to comment after SARS sentencing. Scott, back to you. Thank you, Deanna. Making memories. Shania Twain brings fans on stage, takes requests at Des Moines show. This is written by Paris Barraza of the Des Moines Register. Like any good queen, Shania Twain embraced some of her devoted fan base, showed gratitude toward the thousands that gathered before her, and never once faltered on stage, even in chunky platform black boots. All right, you guys, Shania Twain began, stopping to laugh when the screaming crowd failed to let up. I mean, first of all, what a welcome. Thank you. Just several songs into the set, Twain held her hands to her chest, closed her eyes, and shook her head, taking in the moment. I can see you guys so well, she said. This is an awesome crowd. Des Moines was the second to last stop on the five-time Grammy winner's Queen of Me U.S. tour, playing to nearly 13,000 people on November 3rd at Wells Fargo Arena. Joining the singer who paved a trailblazing path of country and pop was Lily Rose, the Atlanta singer who opened for Twain and performed her debut hit, Villain. Here are the Des Moines Register's six favorite moments from Twain's stunning show, from inviting fans on stage to one special outfit. Two Iowans get special attention from Shania Twain. Once reading old-fashioned letters from fans, now Twain reads Instagram messages, she explained to the crowd over an hour into her set. She read aloud a message from Trisha as a photo of a blonde-haired woman holding a young child appeared on the screens behind Twain. In her message to Twain, Trisha said she'd listened to the singer since she was a child with a boombox and that it would be her first time seeing Twain live. Get up here, Trisha, if you're anywhere here, Twain called out to the crowd. I would love to meet you. It was unclear to Twain whether Trisha was in the crowd for several minutes, so she took a song request from a fan to kill time, singing Ka-Ching off her album Up. Twain sang a portion of the song before laughing when she realized she took a note too high. Still waiting for Trisha to make her way to the stage, Twain took another request, it only hurts when I'm breathing, before seeking another person to join her on stage. That person was Mitchell from Hull in Seuss County. I'm a sucker for a guy in plaid, Twain said. At the request of Mitchell's wife, Jill, Twain sang a portion of Any Man of Mine, a song she performed earlier in the night. Mitchell, who told Twain he was scared as repeated by Twain, loosened up once she began to perform, dancing in front of Twain. After Mitchell left the stage, Trisha from Pleasantville made her way up to the singer. Poor Trisha. All she did was send an Instagram message, Twain said. She didn't know this was going to happen. 
Twain instructed Trisha to dance on stage while she sang a duet with Lily Rose, who returned for a performance of Party of Two. Trisha, who was visibly in shock throughout her time in the spotlight, grooved on stage, held hands with Twain, and hugged her at the end of the song. Before Trisha left the stage, Twain insisted the duo get a photo together. Quote, for me, this is all about making memories and memorable moments, Twain said. And you guys have been so patient. I just mean thank you for all allowing me to indulge in my personal moments because they mean everything to me. I love to meet you guys and make the connection. It's everything. Twain gets to become her personal choir. Okay, you guys are wild, Twain called out after whose bed have your boots been under. We're going to do some real singing here right now, she said, dividing the audience into thirds to sing the word honey in increasingly higher notes. After a bit of practice, Twain was more than satisfied by the crowd's vocal abilities. This is my Queen of Me tour choir here tonight, she said, the Des Moines Queen of Me Choir. This might be the best choir yet, honestly, right guys, she said, turning to her band. The vocal warm-ups were for Twain's next song, Honey, I'm Home, off her 1997 album, Come On Over. Twain makes an entrance, and it's not on stage. Nearly 30 minutes after Twain was expected to take the stage, three spotlights suddenly shone down on the floor seats of the audience. More specifically, one row on the floor, illuminating what appeared to be a, from afar to be three boxes evenly spaced apart, each covered in a cloth material. It was clear Twain was about to kick off the show off stage, but from where? Like something out of a magic show, Twain was revealed to be in the middle of the aisle, donning a black trench coat and sunglasses as she sung Waking Up Dreaming. Some lucky fans with floor seats were treated to an up-close look at the singer as she was carted toward the main stage on her moving platform. How one song has been transformed by fans' perspectives. Special attention was given to the song From This Moment On off the album Come On Over. The song peaked at number four on Billboard's Hot 100 chart in the year 1998. Audience members were invited to the stage, standing near high tables adorned with dim lights as fog gave the stage a hazy look. Twain took photos with her guests, who remained on stage for the song, their presence making it as if Twain was performing for an intimate crowd at a club. Twain serenaded the crowd, slow dancing with one of her backup vocalists and dancers who lifted her as she delivered a powerful note, her neck arched with one leg kicked behind her for added drama. It was beautiful listening to you sing along, she said. I think that song is just everyone's song. You write music and it always means something so personal to me in the moment, but once I release... I realize, especially when I get to meet fans and talk to them about what a specific song means to them or to their life or to someone they know, then I realize that I really let the song go and it becomes everyone's personal moment. A motorcycle and a medley. Cue sounds of an engine revving. After performing Up, Twain let her body and a prop do the talking for I'm Gonna Get You Good. Twain, in her neon long-sleeved blouse, 
shorts, platform boots, and emerald jewelry, put her sunglasses back on, and sat herself on a white motorcycle, lifting one leg high for some flair. It was just one of many moments Twain appeared to be having plenty of fun, including when she performed a medley of songs she said she doesn't often perform live, including She's Not Just a Pretty Face, When, Thank You Baby for Making Someday Come So Soon, Nah, and Waiter, Bring Me Water. Let's go, girls, to Twain's Encore. Fans who've been the music who've seen the music video for Man, I Feel Like a Woman, would have recognized the outfit Twain wore for her encore performance. Twain was in all black, including a floor-length coat reminiscent of a gown that teased a corset and thigh-high boots beneath, paired with black gloves and a black hat. She was no replica Excuse me, this was no replica of what she wore in the music video over two decades ago. It was all original, she said. Since the day I shot the video, that day was the only day I got to wear it, and ever since then it's been in a museum, Twain said, realizing that she'd only worn it once. So she took it on tour. Twain performed That Don't Impress Me Much and Man, I Feel Like a Woman for her encore. Iowa, honestly, you guys have blown me away right now, Twain said. I just need to say once again, thank you for the welcome. Thank you for singing with me, and not just tonight, but for being with me for so many years in my career. Deanna? Scott, I think you should have sung part of that. (laughs) All right, here's how you can reserve a free Thanksgiving meal from Hope Ministries. The deadline is November 15th, which is a week from tomorrow. This is from F. Amanda Tugade. A longtime Des Moines nonprofit turns this holiday season with a plan to help feed people in need, starting with its free Thanksgiving meals. Hope Ministries, which provides free community meals, recovery programs, and an emergency shelter for men, is taking reservations now until November 15th, or until capacity is reached from Des Moines Metro individuals seeking a free turkey dinner for Thanksgiving. Dinners will be delivered to individuals' homes on Thanksgiving Day, which this year is November 23rd. So here's how you can get a free turkey dinner. How can I make a reservation? Reservations for Hope Ministries' free turkey dinner can be made online at www.hopeiowa.org or by phone. Individuals can call 515-265-4277 from 8.30 in the morning till 4.30 in the afternoon, Monday through Friday. So, what's included in the dinner? Made by Hope Ministries cooks, each dinner will include turkey, potatoes, vegetables, a dinner roll, and dessert. The portions are meant to serve one person, but participants can request more meals, said Kathy Cody, Hope's Chief Development Officer. Where will Hope Ministries deliver the meals? Meals will be delivered to recipients who live in the following cities, Altoona, Ankeny, Bondurant, Boonville, Carlisle, Cumming, Clive, Dallas Center, Des Moines, Granger, Grimes, Hartford, Indianola, Johnston, Martinsdale, Norwalk, Pleasant Hill, 
Polk City, Prohl, Urbandale, Van Meter, Waukee, West Des Moines, and Windsor Heights. Deliveries will be made from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on November 23rd, which is Thanksgiving Day. Will Hope Ministries offer a free Thanksgiving meal at its cafe? Yes, Hope Ministries will be serving a free Thanksgiving meal at Hope Cafe, which is at 1310 6th Avenue in Des Moines, from noon to 1 p.m. on November 23rd. All are welcome and no reservations are needed. Does Hope Cafe serve free meals outside of the holiday season? Yes, Hope Cafe offers three free meals to community members seven days a week. From Monday to Saturday, breakfast is served at 7 a.m., lunch at noon, and dinner at 5 p.m. On Sundays, breakfast is served one hour later at 8 a.m., lunch is at 1.30, and dinner at 5 p.m. No IDs are required. No questions are asked, according to the organization's website. So, how can I help? Hope Ministries is accepting monetary donations for its Thanksgiving dinners. Donations can be made online on Hope's website. According to the nonprofit, a $50 donation secures 25 meals. Hope Ministries is currently searching for volunteers to deliver meals on Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day. The organization also needs on-site volunteers to accept food donations on December 23rd and assemble and pack meals on December 25th. On-site volunteers must be at least 13 years old, according to HOPE's guidelines. Reservations for HOPE's Christmas meals will start on November 27th. For more information or to sign up, visit www.hopeiowa.org slash get dash involved slash holiday dash volunteer dash opportunities slash <laughs> you can call us if you need to us to repeat that to you scott back to you thank you those are difficult sometimes 46 horses seized in livestock neglect probe in Dallas County is our final story in the Metro and Iowa section. It's written by Biong M. Biong of the Des Moines Register. Police seized 46 horses and charged the owner of a rural Dallas County horse farm who has long faced accusations of animal neglect. The horses were seized from Linda K. Kilborn, age 78, of Johnston, who faces one count of livestock neglect. A news release from the Dallas County Sheriff's Office said more charges are pending. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and the Animal Rescue League of Iowa assisted the Dallas County Sheriff's Office in the investigation and search warrant that were served November the 1st. Kilborn, who lives in Johnston but owns Riverbend Ranch in rural Granger, has been investigated previously over similar charges. She pleaded guilty in the year 2020 to five counts of failure to dispose of a dead animal, a simple misdemeanor, after a photo of dead horses went viral on Facebook. Four of the charges related to specific dead horses, one of them a colt and another that was partially burned, that a state inspector saw over the course of three visits to the property. The fifth charge related to improper disposal for the bones of multiple, likely dozens of horses that have died on the property over the years, according to criminal complaints. 
Complaints against Kilborn continued in fall of the year 2022 when Elaine Shellenkins told the Des Moines Register she can count 17 horses that died on the horse ranch in the three years she worked for Kilborn. The animals, she said, weren't getting enough food or vet care, and they were constantly getting injured. Aggressive studs would attack young horses and breed freely with with young mares. Several horses were injured by broken fences and other obstacles on Kilborn's land, she said. Kelly Lorenzen, the owner of an equine therapy nonprofit in Dallas Center, also previously told the register she had attempted to help Kilborn sell some of her horses, but that Kilborn raised the prices so high that potential buyers lost interest. She told the Dallas County Sheriff's Office the animals still in Kilborn's care were being neglected. Quote, it's just ridiculous. They're getting no vet care, no dental, no vaccinations, Lorenzen said. A deputy said these are considered livestock and not pets, but if livestock is being killed, that is a concern. Horses just don't die like this, end quote. At the time, Kilborn told the register there was nothing wrong with her horses, and it was not uncommon for an animal, particularly foals, to look thin in the fall. The lawyer for her in the year 2020 case did not respond to a request for comment Thursday. The Dallas County Sheriff's Office said it will share more information as the investigation continues. The horses will remain with the ARL while the court case against Kilborn proceeds. Donations to the ARL to help the horses can be made online at arl-iowa.org by mail with checks regarding rescue horses sent to 5452 Northeast 22nd Street, Des Moines, Iowa, 50313, or via Venmo at ARL-Iowa. Deanna, back to you. Thank you, Scott. Okay, I kind of lost my place where I was here. I'm going to have to go to 50 states um, list here to fill out about five minutes. Um, from Montgomery, Alabama, agricultural office officials say the presence of highly pathogenic avian flu in a flock of chickens has resulted in the death of nearly 48,000 birds at a farm. The State Department of Agriculture and Industries said the commercial farm was quarantined after samples came back positive for HPAI. Out of Juneau, Alaska, the Alaska Wilderness League, an environmental nonprofit, has honored former President Jimmy Carter with a Lifetime Achievement Award in recognition of his conservation work in the state, particularly the creation of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, said the Alaska Beacon. Out of Phoenix, Arizona, Governor Katie Hobbs has announced millions of dollars in federal pandemic relief funds will go toward bolstering staffing for elections. The Democratic governor said almost half the $2.3 million will pay for a state elections fellowship program, temporary support staff, and other needs. Out of Berryville, Arkansas, Locally based Tyson Foods is recalling nearly 30,000 pounds of breaded chicken. Fun Nuggets, after consumers complained of 
finding metal pieces in the dinosaur-shaped patties. Oh, dear. Out of Santa Barbara, California, an unarmed U.S. intercontinental ballistic missile was intentionally destroyed when something went wrong during a test launch. The Air Force Global Strike Command says the flight of the Minuteman III was safely terminated over the Pacific Ocean due to anomaly during a launch from Vandenberg Space Force Base. Out of Pueblo, Colorado, federal officials say their investigation into a coal train derailment that killed a truck driver and shut down a major highway is focused on whether inspection and maintenance practices at BNSF Railway contributed to the accident. From Burlington, Connecticut, officials say they found $8.5 million worth of psychedelic mushrooms during a bust. Authorities say they received a tip about possible drug dealing at a rural home and found dozens of dog food-sized bags of mushrooms there. Police say they arrested a 21-year-old man on drug charges. From Willington, Delaware, three months after the Port of Wilmington changed operators, federal officials announced the port will receive $50 million for the construction of a container terminal from a Department of Transportation program. From the nation's capital, the Washington Post has named veteran media executive Will Lewis to serve as its new CEO and publisher, hoping to turn around a recent slump that has seen job cuts and a declining audience. From Tallahassee, Florida, a dentist on trial in his ex-brother-in-law's slaying says he never explained to authorities that he was a victim of extortion rather than the mastermind behind a 2014 murder-for-hire plot because no one asked him to reveal the truth. Charles Adelson admitted he paid the killers money after the fact, but only because he was being threatened. Out of Dublin, Georgia, another South Korean auto parts company is setting to build a plant in the state investing more than $176 million. Hawashin Company said it will build a plant in the town and hire more than 460 employees. It plans to start production in 2025.